we're, uh, we're going to try really hard to uh, finish up our uh, study today. I spent last, uh, last Thursday most of our time uh, looking at Old Testament or Pentecost in the Old Testament. And since I couldn't wipe the whiteboard off, you can still see remnants of it over there. But we did uh, Pentecost in the Old Testament. I think that was uh, helpful as we dig into Acts chapter 2 today. Let's, uh, let's go to that tune, or that hymn at the beginning. And I'll be honest with you, this, uh, this hymn is not in LSB in this particular form. And somebody pointed out last week that uh, we sang the wrong tune, and uh, that's the only tune I know. So we're stuck with it. All right, so let's uh, let's say Always, uh, always a great song. 
We are uh, smack dab in the middle of day three, session nine. Day three, session nine. And since we got a whopping three questions answered in our worksheet last week, uh, you may think that it is unrealistic that we will finish up today. <laughs> however, however, stranger things have happened. We, uh, we taped a couple weeks ago for uh, Main Street Living here, uh, and uh, you know the, the television show is on Channel 8. Make sure uh, you get a chance to pass that on, or you can just go to the website and watch it anytime you want, the Main Street Living. But uh, I uh, finished up a sermon, and uh, one of our former vicars came up to me and said, you know, I never thought I would live long enough to hear Pastor Bobby preach a 12-minute sermon. <laughs> and uh, see, so stranger things have happened. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we can't laugh at ourselves. Vicar, you don't get that privilege. We'll all laugh at you. Okay, day three, Acts 2, 1 to 18. That's where uh, we're going to pick up on question 12. That question 12, but I want to read through these, uh, these first verses uh, to uh, get it all fresh in our brain. Acts 2, 1 to 18. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them all telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
All right. I don't know why they want us to end at verse 18. It's right in the middle of that quote. But we'll do as they say. Okay. So, question number 12. In what way or ways do verses 1 through 12, and uh, that's of Acts 2 that I just read, in what way do those verses reverse and contrast what happened in Genesis 11, 1 to 9? Genesis 11, 1 to 9. And you should know those words. That's the appointed Old Testament reading for the day of Pentecost. The uh, relatively familiar Old Testament account of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. You've probably heard more than one sermon over the course of the years connecting the Tower of Babel to Pentecost in a great reversal kind of way. That's what this question is getting at. Uh, somebody with a good loud voice want to read that uh, section from Genesis? If you're going to read, you got to take uh, you got to take your mask off if we're going to re uh, if we're going to record it. Otherwise, I mean, that's okay. Vicar, can you use your big boy voice? I sure can. Oh, well, I know you can. Will you please? Uh, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, so we have uh, the account of the Tower of Babel, or Babel if you prefer. That word has uh, even found a place in our vocabulary in the human language. If uh, if Vicar is mumbling, I might say, what are you babbling about over there? We use that word even today. And so how is Pentecost a reversal of Babel? What are some of the things that are um, changed or transposed? The language. The language. Okay, language. Language. So let's be clear on that. They had one language. They had one language. And God confused the languages. This was part of their punishment 
was the confusion of the languages to go from one language to many languages. Now think about Pentecost. You've got many languages, and what are the people here? One. They hear, they all hear it in their own, and uh, you know, there's there's sometimes some debate. It shouldn't be, because it's clear from the words of the text that the disciples were actually given the ability to speak in foreign languages. This wasn't like the United Nations, where everybody's wearing headphones, and one person speaks and it just, you know, no, everybody was given the ability, their utterance, the Holy Spirit, God gave them this ability. Now, they're all hearing in their own language. How is that a reversal of battle? How is that many languages going to one? What's the one thing that unites that? God. God? Let's be more specific. God is the one who unites it. How? What is it about that message that unites? It's the gospel. That's the point I want to make sure. The fact that they're all hearing uh, the same the, in their own language, that's wonderful. But that's not the big miracle. The big miracle is the one thing that they're hearing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. That is the one voice that is the same and unites everything with this Pentecost language. There's a couple of other little things that sometimes we don't catch. Now, with the, with the Tower of Babel, why were they trying to make the tower anyway? What did they want? They wanted to reach God. They wanted to reach God. They wanted to reach God. Clark? Could you could you reach the ceiling for me? No. Could you just at least try? <laughs> and whatever you want, just try to reach it. Try to reach it. Try try a little harder. Okay, you made a point. No matter how hard he tries. He might even do the, uh, have you seen this crazy milk crate challenge where people put these plastic milk crates up in a tower and they're going to walk all the way to the top and then walk all the way down? Have you seen that? Yeah. At a, at a time when hospitals are relatively understaffed and overpopulated, uh, people are doing milk crate challenges. Yeah, and that does. No matter how hard you try, you can't get there. That's the whole point of battle. When we try to save ourselves or justify ourselves, and this goes on in modern religion as well. This goes on in modern religion as well. So many of either Roman Catholic or evangelical practices are an attempt for me, either in my mind or my heart or my spirit, to, to somehow go to God or reach God, or justify myself. That's really what's going on. What happens? At battle, God goes down. He goes down to confuse. 
But at the Pentecost miracle, God goes down, not to confuse. You've got all these people from all these different places that have come together in Jerusalem for Pentecost. God goes down. He unites them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we talked about last week, after Pentecost, what do these people do? Be simple. They went home. And they went home changed, transformed. They went home with the gospel. They went home with that message. Okay. Uh, okay, number 13. Why is this time, why is this time that began at Pentecost the last days? And that's that quote from uh, Joel, Acts 2.17, in the last days it shall be. And we've got two sections there. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. This is a real simple question with a real simple answer. Somebody want to read uh, that first one? Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. That's good. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. Keep that in mind. Now let's go to 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. Knowing that they were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have, in these latter days, he has spoken to us through his son. Pastor, I think there's uh, one more verse to be ready. Oh, okay. Go on. Okay. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Made manifest for the uh, in these last days. How is Jesus, according to that first Peter section? How is Jesus made manifest or visible? What, what do you see? What did Jesus do? He became a man. And what? So what? He suffered and died. He shed his blood. He shed his blood. An idea can't bleed. A concept can't bleed. This is what separates so many philosophies and philosophical positions from the Christian faith. Ideas, concepts, philosophies cannot bleed. Jesus bleeds. And he doesn't just bleed for fun. He bleeds for you and for me and for the life of the world. And 
So when we get back to this question, and it's a really good question, a really important question, why is this time that began at Pentecost the last days? What has happened before Pentecost so that now Pentecost can be called the last days? Okay, okay. Go back to the resurrection. That's what happened 50 days before. Now what happened three days before the resurrection? Good Friday. In the Gospel of Mark, and we've had several readings here uh, recently from the Gospel of Mark on our Sunday morning divine service. But in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, uh, Jesus is always telling people, he'll do a miracle, he'll do something great, and people are amazed, and people are astonished. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Wild. It's crazy. Don't tell them. Of course you're supposed to tell people about Jesus, right? What hadn't happened yet at that point in the story? Good Friday and Easter. You can't have a full gospel message if you don't have Good Friday and Easter. What good does it do to run around and tell people, hey, hey, there's a great miracle worker here. If you're sick, he'll, he'll, he'll make you healthy. So you get healthy, you live for a few extra years, and then you die and go to hell. That doesn't do anybody any good. We have to have the person and work of Jesus complete. Now this does not mean that the Holy Spirit was not at work before Pentecost. But the message of the gospel could not be full and completed to go out. It's only a promise. It's only something in the future until Jesus accomplished his mission. Perfect life, obedient death, glorious resurrection, and ascension. Okay. Does, that, does that make sense? Okay. Very, very important for us. So, so what does that mean for us? What days are we living in? We are living in the last days. Technically, and you can, uh, you can make a case for either the ascension of our Lord or Pentecost. Technically, from the day of the ascension or from the day of Pentecost, those ten days apart there, until Jesus comes again in power and might and glory. These are the last days. It's the time of the church. These are the last days. And we are living in them. Every once in a while, something wild and crazy happens to kind of wake us up and remind us that we're living in the last days. Like maybe a worldwide pandemic or bombs going off or crazy people flying airplanes into Twin Towers. You know, every once in a while, we get kind of a reminder, a jolt, a shock, a wake-up call that evil is real and that we are living in the last days. God wants everyone to know and to realize that today is the day of our salvation. We need to be ready and prepared today. Tomorrow's not guaranteed, except in Christ Jesus. Alright, sorry to get so preachy there. 
Okay, what are verses 17 and 18 emphasizing regarding those who will receive the Spirit? 17 and 18. Uh, the last, the, the, the. Say it again. Be ready today. Be ready today. I remember 40 years ago, people would come up to me and say, you know, all this stuff going on in Russia, I think we're living in the last days. And I'd say, you're absolutely right. And then when we got close to Y2K, oh, with everybody going crazy with this Y2K and buying generators and stockpiling. Anybody remember that? Yeah. You know, oh, I think we're living in the last days. You know, I think you're right. And then 9-11 happened. Oh, oh, I think we're living in the last days. Yeah, okay. This has been going on for roughly 2,000 years. Oh, Hurricane Katrina. We're living in the last days. Yeah, of course we are. Every, every manifestation of sin and evil is to remind us to be that, that wake-up call. Okay, look at this. We are all the way to day four. Uh, <laughs> oh, we got to back up. We got to back up. Sorry. We're not all the way to day four. Pronouns sometimes confuse me. Okay. So, uh, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh on your I will pour. Uh, I will pour out my. Well, these these are. We, we've already we've already talked about creation. Who owns everything? God. God is talking about your in that in that third person sense. Okay. So all people. Uh, we're talking about the church here. He owns all people, and to his children, he's going to pour out his spirit. And uh, I, that's not where I thought you were going to go. Although the whole pronoun thing is good, we need to we need to always be asking ourselves what's the referent for those pronouns. That's the only way you can get through a language. But I thought you were going to ask about uh, is this text talking about women's ordination? Oh. You know, I'll pour out your spirit on all people, uh, your sons and your daughters. Okay. And uh, since I brought it up, no, it's not talking about women's ordination. But in the, uh, in the Old Testament, who was to be circumcised? Boys. Boys. Boy, babies are to be circumcised. This whole thing of female genital mutilation, whatever, this is, this is wicked. This is evil. This is sinful. And this is not what uh, the Holy Scriptures are talking about. Now, uh, when uh, I'll pick on little Frida again. Uh, when little Frida was baptized back in June, mom and dad said, uh, hey, you know, come, to the come to the hospital, Pastor Moldeen. Uh, it's going to be a while before we get to church. We're going to be in the hospital for a while. We want a little free to baptize. 
Did Pastor Moline say, oh, I'm sorry, Frida's a girl, and baptism is only for boy babies? Of course not. Of course not. That's what that part of it is talking about. Okay. That circumcision, by definition, is only for boy babies. And that is because God was teaching through circumcision that every time a Hebrew man and his Hebrew wife got together in an intimate way, they were reminded that God's promise would come from the seed of a woman. And now that that has been accomplished and been fulfilled in the person work of Jesus Christ, circumcision is no longer a uh, religious or theological thing. The book of Colossians tells us that baptism has swallowed up and superseded that. Okay. Alright. We're going to go to day four. Simply because I'm going to be honored. Okay, now we've got a little shorter section. 19 to 23. Nine, Acts 2, 19 to 23. Should that be a 32? I'm sorry? Should that be a 19 to 32? The next day starts at 33. You know, I got a hard enough time remembering my own titles. I think he's right. 19 to... Oh, yeah, that, that is transposed there. 19 to 32. 19 to 32. Okay, I'll pick up right in the middle of that Joel quote. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That's uh, end of the world kind of talk there. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh shall also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. See the humor in that? No. I can confidently tell you that David died and was buried. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For God did not ascend into the heavens, or David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Oh, am I going too far now? Oh, gosh. See, see what you did to me, Leonard? I just got going and I couldn't stop. Okay, well, forgive me. Uh, verses 20 to 21 move forward in time to depict the time just before Jesus' second coming. See Jesus' similar predictions. We're not going to go there to those similar predict predictions. Uh, if you want to, you can, or maybe you already have. Uh, there, there is a picture, a word picture, that we really need to have in our brain. And we've talked about it a lot on our radio programs. Uh, we've talked about it some in our, uh, in our sermons. When we had our Tuesday morning men's Bible study, we went through the CTCR document on biblical prophecy. It's available online and uh, it's really, really good. But there's a phrase that is introduced in there that I'm not sure that I ever heard before. But it is, it is talking about the prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective. And it's much simpler than it sounds like that. Oftentimes in Scripture, the prophets talk about things in the future. And they don't distinguish if those things are going to happen tomorrow, or next month, or next year, or 500 years from now. They just kind of all throw it out there. And then we kind of get to help sort it out. And the, the best way that I heard this explained, Dr. Robbie, who wrote that document, uh, Pastor Marundi was really, really good with this as well. If you are driving west, if you are driving west, and you are hoping one day to see the mountains, and all of a sudden you're driving on the interstate, and you, you look, and what, what is that? Is it, are those clouds, or is that a mountain? What is that? I think it's a mountain, but I'm not really sure. And so you keep driving. And maybe you drive 50 miles or 100 miles, and now you're pretty sure those are mountains. <laughs> those, those really are mountains. But you can't really tell how close they are. You can't tell if they're 50 miles away or if they're 500 miles away. Why? Because they're mountains and they're big. You have no perspective of just how big or how close you are. And so you drive and you drive and you drive and you drive. And the mountains, you know, they get like, go from like an inch in your eyesight to maybe two inches. And you're still not sure. You get the word picture, right? When the prophets are talking about things that are going to happen in the future, 
They don't give us a strict timeline. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. We just know from the prophet Joel that on the last day, heaven and earth as we know it will go away. Will go away. And God will return in power and might and uh, glory, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Exactly when is it going to happen? Whenever God wants it to happen. When will that be? I don't know, but God says be ready today. Be ready today. Okay. Um, which of these, uh, yeah, read the headlines. Read the headlines. What's the good news that we can know even as we see these frightening signs? Acts 2, verse 21. What's the good news as we wait for the judgment and destruction of this world as we know it? Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Even those who, who get struck by lightning on the last day, they'll be saved. Yes, if they believe in Jesus. Even those who get some terrible plague and not. Yes, 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 that's the hope. And this is why, no matter what is going on in the world, we do not lose hope. We do not lose hope. We have a hymn, we don't sing it here often enough, there's so many great hymns and so little time to sing. There's a great hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than whatever I watch on CNN or headline or Fox News. No! No! My hope is built on nothing less than how good I feel when I get up in the morning. No! My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We don't lose hope. We don't. The whole world, just listen, the whole world is losing hope. We don't lose hope, and we share that hope with a hopeless world. I keep talking that way, I'm going to get tongue twisted, so I'm going to move on. Okay, according to verse 22, 23, who was responsible for Jesus' death? Oh, Vicar. I had a question about verse 21. Sorry. This is the name of being thorough. Uh, so this kind of, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That sounds like the opposite of what it says in Matthew, where it says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. Yes. Uh, call upon the name of the Lord is a metaphor for faith. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can cry out in faith unless the Holy Spirit has given them that gift. So uh, that, that is, I'll give you a little bit of correction, even though I'm trying to get done in the next 18 minutes. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of, uh, of a uh, encouragement or combination. That is a, that is a good observation. 
That is a good observation. And when we see those seeming contradictions in Scripture, we don't run from them, we don't hide from them, but we let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. Okay, uh, so who's the we? According to verse, or according to verse 23, who was responsible for Jesus' death? Verse 23. Okay, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Now, you want to talk about your, your pronouns or your reference? Who's the you? Always, always, about 
every other week, shine my shoes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can tell you that's why he was my favorite baker. Okay, go. Uh, he also waded through 18 inches of water in my basement to shut off my water heater when uh, the bottom of it blew out. He really wanted that. Either that or he was just a genuinely nice guy. I'm not that desperate yet. <laughs> I'm not that desperate yet. Just remember that last three little word. Okay, so God promised David that there would always be one of his descendants sitting on the throne. That's just a simple promise. Yet, what was certainly true about David? He was a sinner. He was a sinner. Look at verse 29 here that they point us to. I read, I moved way past it. Um, Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So God was not promising that David, the person David, would sit on the throne forever, but that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. So David's dead, David's buried, David's toast. What does that mean for David? Let's just keep going. What was God's promise to David? Verse 30. Acts 2, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants, on the throne. It didn't take long before the split kingdom, the northern kingdom, is defeated and carried away. It didn't take long before the southern kingdom, 150 years later, is defeated and carried away. There is no kingdom. There is no throne. All of the attempts, the uh, Zionism that we see going on in our world, the obsession both politically and militarily with Israel, um, all of these things that are done theologically are misplaced. Zionism is basically the teaching that we need to restore Israel to its proper boundaries. We need to rebuild the temple. We need to restore animal sacrifices. And then Jesus will return. That's Zionism. That's what you watch on the Pat Robinson type TV shows every night on cable TV. It is evil, it is wicked, it is not Christian. Why do we not need to rebuild the temple? Who is the temple? Jesus. Why do we not need to restore animal sacrifices? Who is the once for all sacrifice for sin? 
Jesus. Alright? You see what's missing in Zionism is Good Friday and Easter. So, these passages from David that are sometimes uh, about David that are taken out of context are really, really important for us. Jesus is the descendant of David. That's why the book of Matthew and the book of Luke goes into the long genealogies to show that Jesus, both from his flesh and blood mother, Mary, and his adopted father, Joseph, is the descendant of David that is promised throughout the pages of Scripture. Uh, what is therefore the inescapable conclusion of the Scriptures? Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Anybody have any questions on that? These readings come up a couple of times in our pericopes, and I know Pastor Molina and I have preached on it, uh, pre preached on this on at least a couple of occasions. This quote where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit at my feet. Uh, it's a quote from uh, one of the Psalms. David has a son and a Lord that are the same person. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of David, truly a human being, and he is also the Lord God. Luther said it this way, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. True God and true man all the same time. Well, how much, you know, it's, that's a, that, it's a good question, but it's an impossible question for us to answer. You know, it would be the same way as saying, Lynn, um, when God gave Adam and Eve the promise of one who would come and crush the serpent's head, how much did they understand? Did they, you know, we don't know. We don't know. All we know is that they believe the word of God. But I mean, and, and that's where we're at, too. We can't foresee. No, we can't foresee, but we're we're in a different spot in history. Right. We're looking back right. at the completed work of Jesus. Right. And so in that respect, we have it better, we have it easier, whatever. We have we have all of scriptures written down for us in that respect. So it's really, really hard for us to answer those kind of questions. How much, you know, Eve, Eve thought that Cain was the Savior. You can tell that by the wording of Genesis chapter 4. She was a little bit off on that. That doesn't mean she didn't believe the Word of God. It's just she didn't quite have it all figured out in her head. Did, uh, uh, did David think that Solomon or Absalom or his grandson Rehoboam. You know, 
but he believed the word of God that God would send to see. That's the main thing. All right, let's finish this thing up, shall we? I already read part of it. Acts 2, 33 to 41. Let me find some light here. Verse 33. Being therefore called at the right hand, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, what is The Lord said, My Lord, set my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay. In verses 33 and 37, Peter again quotes the scriptures to show that the resurrected Christ is now the exalted Christ. At God the Father's right hand as Lord and Christ. Cut to the heart, truly repentant. The hearers were ready for the gospel message. How did they, and how do we, receive what God so earnestly wants us to receive? Now we'll find out who's Luther. <laughs> Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So is repentance something that I do, and then baptism something that God does for me? Or do the Bereans down the road have it right? Repentance is my decision. Baptism is my decision. Be baptized is passive. So that's real simple. That's something God is doing to us and for us. Repentance consists of two parts. Remember your catechism. Repentance consists of two parts. First, that you are sorry for your sins. Second, that you believe the promises of God. Repentance is God's work. Repentance is God's work. God, the Holy Spirit, by the power of His Word, His Word of law, drives us to our knees and crushes us. And then God, the Holy Spirit, by the power of His Word, the Gospel, lifts us up with the forgiveness of sins. Don't fall for the trap or for the lie that wants to pit repentance against God's gift of faith. Sometimes the word repentance 
is used in a very narrow sense. Like being sorry for your sin. Vicar, repent of your bad attitude with regard to shining my shoes. I'm using that in a very narrow sense. Generally, when the word repent is used, it is both a law and gospel. It's a both and. It's a both and. Okay. Uh, what is included in the promise? Verse 38. Who's got uh, Acts 2.38? I just closed my Bible. Thank you, you said to them, repent. Be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the forgiveness of sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our uh, Pentecostal or Berean friends like to ask the question or play the game, oh, so when did you receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, are you spirit-filled? Oh, these are the kind of things that are out there. Well, I can tell you when I received the Holy Spirit. August 31st, 1958. I've got a birthday coming next Tuesday. My baptismal birthday. That's when I received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is it possible that because my mom and dad went to church on a regular basis before I was baptized, is it possible, like John the Baptist jumping in the womb of his mother, that I already was a believer? That's possible. But there's no way to know for sure. The objective truth, the objective reality is the day of our baptism. That's when we know for sure. Two things. Two things. God has connected the gift of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important. Sometimes we'll have people that will come and visit that aren't Lutheran. And, uh, you know, hey, can we come to communion? Sometimes I will ask the question, will you be confessing the Nicene Creed with us? And sometimes I'll go, what's that? <laughs> Other times they might say, well, why would you ask that question? Toward the very end of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. There is no true Pentecostal. There is no true... Um, and uh, the vast majority of evangelicals cannot confess that line in the Nicene Creed. They can't, because they don't believe it. They don't believe it. Okay. How has this study helped you to prepare to share God's Word, especially with Jewish people? I can be honest with you, I don't know that many Jewish people. So... Let's just file that question in the dumb question category. <laughs> God desires that all people know the good news of the gospel. 
Jew and Gentile alike. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think the best way that I can summarize this for you is don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Be fed with word and sacrament. End of Romans, Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all hope. Pretty clear, right? And then, uh, oh man, who was the guy in the 60s? Uh, I didn't see a picture. I want to say his last name was Ames, Ed Ames. Yeah. My cup runneth over with love. Yes, our Christian cup overflows with love, with hope, with peace, with comfort. That's how we evangelize. That's how we reach out. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter one. We comfort one another with the comfort that God has comforted us with. It's a real tongue twister when you read it. It's real simple. God has given you comfort in the forgiveness of sins, and now you comfort one another. It's really hard sometimes to forgive people when they're just big jerks. <laughs> you know who knows how hard it is to forgive people when people are big jerks? God. <laughs> yeah, because that's us. That's us. Uh, okay. We're four minutes past. Please forgive me. I told Pastor Moline we'd get to this point. So, the, uh, my understanding is that you're going to back up a chapter. And starting next Thursday, Pastor Moline will do an in-depth study on the book of Acts. And uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. That's all I can say. I can't build it up too much. All right. Let's close with the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit, be it abide with you all. Amen. Amen. Thanks for letting me pitch in these last couple of years.